what a bunch of numpties. <laughs> um, we say regularly, 20 schemes is proof that God uses the weak things and the very foolish things uh, to shame uh, the wise and the strong. Uh, 20 schemes exist to bring the light of the gospel to Scotland's most deprived areas. If you are interested in that, if you want to know more, if you'd like to pray for us, if you'd like to give financially to us, if you would like to come and join us, and then come and speak to one of the guys, one of the girls who are here today in a t-shirt. If you want to give specifically, you can do that by texting that number that's on the screen or going to that web address. But we would love you to partner in the gospel as we seek to take the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to those in our own nation that are deprived of it. And so we'd love you to partner with us in some ways. Uh, let me, on your behalf, say thank you to uh, John, to Keith, and to Mez for what they've shared with us so far today. It's probably worth John just explaining it. Oh, polite applause. Probably worth explaining that phrases like off the bat probably came from us first. Probably. Right? Yeah. Um, we're older well, than you are. <laughs> That's right. But a good opportunity now just to, to ask you some questions. There's a few that have come in that flow off the back of your sermon on your APTAT thing. So you've walked through APTAT, particularly the T for Trust, for what it looks like for a preacher two minutes beforehand. There's a couple of questions that are more about that in our daily walk with Christ. So let me read two. What does your daily walk of delight in Christ look like? How do you keep the spiritual disciplines from turning to drudgery instead of delight? So that's a personal one. And then one that says, how do you spend time seeking the Lord with your wife? What about family worship in the home when your children were younger? So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. <laughs> and, and then we'll go home, right? Yeah, correct. Um, well, the first thing that comes to my mind with regard to keeping my own encounter with the Lord fresh and vital is another acronym. I'm you know, acronyms are evidence of a person's weakness and shrewdness. Like, like I, I O U S. You you have I O U. I'm sure. And uh, I O U S. Um, so what I do, I mean, I read my Bible. I probably haven't missed five days in forty years of reading my Bible. I don't know. I I, I do not miss. I mean, I. I read my Bible every day because I am desperate for that not to happen. Hmm. And I think faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and that's true every day. And so, uh, what do you do if you go to your Bible and you are dead? I mean, you're blank. There are no affections. There's no, you're just there by discipline. What do you do? And I do I-O-U-S. So, and these are all from the Psalms. I want to learn how to pray from the Bible. I incline my heart to your testimonies and not to getting gain. Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies. Oh, open my eyes that I may behold wonders out of your word. Psalm 119, verse 18. You, unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86.11. And S, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all my days. Psalm 90, verse 14. Though that, that's what I, I, 
whoever asked that question, uh, be encouraged that every single Christian human being has seasons of languishing affections. Seasons when we are uh, low in our temperature, when we ought to be white hot. And therefore, every day is a battle to be awakened and quickened and in love again with the Word and with Jesus. And I have found that pleading with Him the way the psalmists pled with Him, incline my heart, open my eyes, that's Paul, and unite my heart and satisfy me. It's that last one that really gets to the heart of the matter, isn't it? Like you, you can be inclined to the Word and nothing will be happening. Your eyes can be open to see and the affections not yet be quickly, not yet be awakened and your heart can be united that is not fractured and going in a thousand directions. But until the Holy Spirit moves with a sweet satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus, until that happens, then we're not going to be fit to walk into the, into the world. So that's a glimpse of how I approach the Word every day. And usually it's in the morning. 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, I'm up early enough to, to be in the Word every, every day. Um, the second question is that Noel and I have tried to make a practice um, as a couple, not just with children, of praying together every day and bathing that prayer in the Word of God. Um, and so this morning we prayed together before we came over here. In the evening, uh, we've been reading out loud to each other little biographies. We just finished a short biography of Lord Shaftesbury. We didn't like it. I didn't like it because it, I, I thought the man was too hard on him. But, um, but we're reading out loud together. There are these little volumes in America called uh, Martin Luther Had a Wife or C.S. Lewis Had a Wife. There's five volumes. In fact, they're all in one volume now with about 25 lives. And we read them out loud to each other. And then we, we read a portion of Scripture. Right now we're in 1 John. And then we, we pray together. So that, that's, that's what we've been do doing for 50 years. I mean, we were just married 50 years last December. When the kids were there, we added on to that um, devotions with the kids in the morning. One Bible verse. I mean, breakfast is, is quickly. One Bible verse. And, and prayer before we eat breakfast together. And we try to eat breakfast as a family. Hard to get the family together always as the kids get older. But in the evening, there would be Bible story and, and prayer. And we would either read Bible story book or we would read some, a chapter in the Bible and then we'd pray together. And there were, there were times when we sang, uh, but n not as religious, not as faithfully as I would now given <laughs> Keith Getty's pressure. <laughs> Uh, um, um, but, but just a little thought about singing there. That's another thing. Say, so for the last two years or so, I, I have I have a phone here, and I have on it Evernote. And one of my one of my files in Evernote is called Songs, and I have about 130 favorite hymns, and I simply sing through them every morning. So all by myself in my study, in my little nook where nobody can hear me but God. I think. Um, <laughs> I, I sing, and, and I, that, that sometimes feels to me very awkward and sometimes very authentic, mm. but it just seems the right thing to do. Maybe that's enough. Uh, on that topic, what's your favorite hymn? 
if you had to choose one? Well, okay, I would say, let's just go with the most, I love right now singing He Will Hold Me Fast more than singing anything else just because I'm old and need to be held onto till I'm dead. And I, 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 I thought once upon a time, my view of sanctification had to be refined over the years because I thought when I was 30 that walking with the Lord for, say, uh, 40 years, which would bring you to 70, would mean that you have 30 years' worth of trajectory that would secure your last five. It doesn't work like that. I think that I am as vulnerable today to dullness and worldliness and temptation as I ever was. Hmm. That may sound tragic to you, like sanctification is supposed to be progressive, isn't it? Hmm. So what's with that? And I, I don't know what it is. I just know when Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, I think he meant I fought it to the end. And if you get the notion that long about 60 or 65 you can stop fighting and live off previous warfare, you're in trouble. Hmm. At least that's my experience. Hmm. Staying within the context of family, someone's asked, I was saved after I got married. I accept the biblical teaching that my husband is the head of the house and family. What advice do you give to a woman in this situation? So I'm presuming uh, the, hum the husband is an unbeliever. An unbeliever. I presume well, there's a the text country. written for you. you know, it's 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. It's written to women who are married to unbelievers. So the, my first advice would be memorize the, those verses. Um, and and they, are, they are most remarkable. And uh, I, I love those verses. I love them for myself, frankly. <clears throat> I, 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 most, most of the texts that are written for women in the Bible I find very helpful for me. <laughs> Um, but, but that's the, the place. It, and uh, I, I, the, the, the burden of that text is that your life is essential to your words. I mean, it says that he may be one without a word. Now, now I, I don't think that is an absolute mean you can't ever talk about Jesus with your husband because he's got to know you're a believer or he can't be converted, and it says he will be converted. So he's got to know the gospel, and, and so it, I think it means don't harangue him, don't nag him, don't preach at him, but in, in all humility, in all lowliness, somewhere along the way, lay your heart bare before this man as to where you stand and why you're there. No, not in a preachy way, but a testimony way. This is why I love Jesus. I believe that loving Jesus will help me love you better. So please don't think that when I put him first, I'm loving you worse. It doesn't work that way, honey. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I will love you better for loving him more. Now, he may find that unintelligible, but you, you need to then show that. You need mm. to prove that. And it, it's very uh, complex in a day like ours when spousal abuse is the first thing people think of often when you talk about submission. And uh, we can go there if you want to, but um, 
there is a real kind of submission that does not make your husband your absolute Lord. That text makes no sense unless Jesus is your Lord above your husband because you're aiming to convert the husband <laughs> to the Lord that's above you, you both. And if you're aiming to convert your husband, clearly you have not submitted to his wrong ideas. I mean, think, think through the implications of this text for what submission does and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that your brain has been surrendered to the unbeliever's brain because if it were, you'd become an unbeliever. And the text clearly, clearly says, stand your ground, woman. Stand your ground. You have an independent relationship with the Lord that's authentic and unshakable no matter what he says, no matter what he does. This is real and Jesus is your, your Lord and you want him included in that. That's a remarkably independent, in a sense you might say non-submissive. So at, at the level of intellectual commitments, you're committed to Jesus, not to what the husband believes which means that, that submission has a flavor about it that's not absolutistic in the sense of he's, this, this man is my Lord. Whatever he says goes. It doesn't. Whatever Jesus says goes. But oh my, once you have rested in Jesus and longed to show this man as a leader, that is, honor his leadership. He may not even be a leader, but you're going to do everything you can to honor that leadership and call out of him all the initiatives, all the protection, all the provision. Those are the, those are the three words that I think headship implies. That is, protecting this woman. I'm going to die for her if I have to. I'm gonna, she is my woman. Nobody can have her but me. And I'm protecting her against everything that might hurt her. Number two, I'm going to do everything I can to provide her. Even if I've got a disability and she has to work for me, I'm going to do everything I can to be the provider. And I'm going to take initiatives. I'm talking to the men now, really. But that's what she wants to awaken and win from him. And, and I think there are submissive ways to say no to an unbelieving husband. If he wants you to do group sex, you're going to say, I can't. I love you. I think this is bad for you, bad for us. I can't do that because of Jesus. So, you know, with, with, all, the, with all the texts in the Bible that talk about subordination, children to parents, wives to husbands, um, citizens to governments and church members to elders. Those four groups, all of them are qualified. They're not absolute, right? You don't do everything a government says. You don't do everything a wacko elder says who's left the faith. You don't do everything a parent tells you to do if they try to get you to join them in sinning in some way. You, the, the, the absoluteness of Jesus relativizes, qualifies the subordination of a child, a wife, a citizen, and a church member. Let me jump off that into this because it relates to the, the member elder thing. So someone has asked, uh, when, if ever, is it appropriate to move from one local church to another because of a lack of confidence in the leadership? If the lack of confidence is rooted in the pastor's misuse of the Word of God at a level that's serious enough to undermine the gospel or compromise the faith, that would be one answer. 
that's, that's when it would be perfectly legitimate, I think. And you wouldn't do it quickly. I'm not eager to have people jumping around from church to church as the pastor says something they don't, don't like. I'm just saying after prayerful and thoughtful and personal engagement with the pastor, this is one of my biggest beefs is that people just leave and don't ever say anything to anybody. They, they should make an appointment with the pastor and say, here's what we've heard from you that distresses us. And we need to know, are we mishearing you? Because we don't want to be troublemakers here. We just want to be sheep that are fed and grow in grace. And, and how that pastor responds to that will, will help them know, is there a disagreement here about the authority of Scripture, about the nature of Christ's work, about the application of the gospel to lives that is fundamentally uh, breaking and, and if so, then, you, then, then you'd be right up front with the pastor and say, well, we're, we're feeling then that we, we can't authentically worship here because of that profound, serious disagreement. And, and hopefully, there could be an amicable go your way. But I would just encourage people to be slow to do that. I mean, I, it would be easy for me, I think. I'm, I go to the church. I attend the church where I pastored for 33 years. It's been six years since I stepped out of the pulpit. I love this church. I love the new pastor, new, six years in. And there are little things I would do different, <laughs> a bunch of them. And how easy it would be to say, well, I'll go to one of the church plants. They do it better over there. Hmm. I don't think that's a good idea. I think I need to be real slow to make those kinds of hmm. changes. Another question, should churches sing worship songs written by people or churches who do not hold to orthodox biblical theology? Yeah, we do it already. You just don't know you do it. <laughs> um, that's, not, that's, that's not an answer. That's an observation. And the answer is not simple. Uh, in principle, I think it can be done. What makes it less confident to say, no problem is that like hanging out with anybody on any issue, like co-belligerence, whether the hanging out signifies compromise is what makes a difference. Like if, if I stand in line at an abortion clinic to protest and next to me is a Catholic priest, is that okay? Oh look, Piper plays fast and loose with the doctrine of justification. He doesn't think it's a big deal that people have a wrong view of Mary or that they exalt the human authority over Scripture. He doesn't. I do that because I don't think that's what people infer. I don't think one person in a thousand watches me and that Catholic priest marching together in front of Planned Parenthood and conclude they're both wishy-washy on doctrine. I don't think anybody goes there. Now, if I believe they did, I probably wouldn't. So, back to the hymn, if there is a sense among enough people, we're compromising our convictions about X important doctrine by singing that song written by those people who contradict that doctrine, I think I'd back away from it. I mean, there are a lot of good songs. Why use the ones that are causing problems? There are hundreds of wonderful songs. I mean, let's be specific. Hillsong, not exactly my favorite way of doing church or understanding some things. Um, 
He's the breath in our lungs. I've sung a dozen times and, and others. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, I don't think people are concluding, oh, Piper's, you know, wishy-washy on, on the differences there. And I will sing, uh, this is my father's world. I don't think the person who wrote that was even a Christian probably. Um, so truth matters more than origin. Make sure what you're singing is true and that you can give. I mean, I, when, when we sing, and can it be, written by Charles Wesley, I know that what he means by thine eye diffused a quickening ray is not what I mean when I sing that song. I change the meaning in my head. <laughs> I give it a Calvinistic meaning. And that's true with numerous songs that I know the people who wrote this song intended something I will not intend. But the words are not so um, particular that they demand... Now, I, do, I wish I didn't have to do that. But the song is so great in so many ways and so many people sing it, I just adjust. This is a great question. Uh, someone says, Hi, Pastor John. I'm someone who's been ex exposed to a lot of Christian talks and events in the last couple of years, but I am still struggling to put my faith in Christ. What advice could you give me? Still struggling to put yeah. my faith in Christ? Yeah. Wow. I wish I knew you. <laughs> I would really probe before I gave an answer. I mean, I would probe the word struggle. Hmm. What is that? Where are you? You know what? what um, I want to I help you so bad. Get over that. May, let, let me just say what comes to my mind. I, it, it, uh, let me put, give you two texts and then tell you why the word struggle is a little odd and yet understandable. Um, in Matthew 7, Jesus said... The way is narrow, and the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now, that, that would mean, well, of course you're going to struggle. It's hard. I mean, that's what he said. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and few there be that find it. He must have said that because he knew you're, you're trying to get through the door, right? And it's hard. Like, I don't even know how to do this. How do you get through the door? The gate so narrow, and it's hard. Okay, so that text gives me empathy with the word struggle. But you, what? Four chapters later, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, just ju those are both in the Bible. The way is hard, the gate is narrow. It's, it's an easy yoke. It's a light burden. Both are true. That's what we believe about this book. Both are true. What makes a little theologian out of everybody is trying to make them 
figure out how they're both true. And in my mind, here's my best shot at how they can both be true. What could be easier than to stop working for God, stop trying to prove anything as a means of salvation, and just rest in the work of Jesus that is so complete, so full, to cover all your sins, give you all the righteousness you need, adopt you into the family without working. What could be easier than to say, I give up, I fall down, I rest? I'll tell you what could be easier. A proud working for God. Because we don't like to become children. Unless you turn and become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Who wants to be a little child? Only somebody. I want to look competent. Children, they just, I mean, where, where is he? He, he walked into the, one of your pastors. He walked in with that little baby, two-week-old baby a while ago. I mean, this, this guy's gigantic. Raise your hand. Where are you? There you are. Okay. Just, he walked in. Here, well, that little baby looked like a dot in his arm. And who wants to look like that baby? I want to look like you. I don't, I don't mess with you, you know. No, I don't. Okay. But, you know, he can hold his own in the world and make it in the scheme, I presume. But... That baby, nobody's going to praise that baby. That's why it's hard. Our ego makes it hard to come to Jesus. It's not hard to come to Jesus. It's not a struggle except the struggle to rest. That's my answer to how those texts can be true. The one says, come and rest. It's easy. It's light. And the other one says it's hard. And that's because resting is hard for people with an ego. So I'm being hard on you now. Um, Maybe the struggle is rooted in, I want to reserve for myself some power, some ego, some uh, praise, some worth, something instead of, I'm just done. I am done trying to prove anything. That's what I'd say. I think we'll end it there. We're going to sing before we finish. Would you mind praying just to finish off our day? So, Father, for the brother or sister who, who just asked that question, I'm sure they are not alone and that others, perhaps here and we know in our churches, do struggle. What does it mean? How can I do it? What, how can I lay down all the objections, lay down all the resistance that rises up in my heart that doesn't want to let certain things go. And I just ask right now that the miracle would be wrought and that the eyes of the heart would be so illumined with the beauty of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and the greatness of Christ, and the power of Christ, and the wisdom of Christ, that all resistance would fall. So strengthen, thanks in the churches, Lord, of of 20 schemes. Thank you for this ministry. May every need be met for every church, and may the dreams be fulfilled for the 20 plus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.